Um, yeah, let's start straight away with today's talk on gendering counterinsurgency. Um, Dr. Lali Khalili obtained her PhD from Columbia University with a, a thesis that she later turned into a book that is called Heroes and Martyrs of Palestine, The Politics of National Commemoration, with, published with Cambridge University Press in 2007, um, a work that included, a that included field work uh, of one year of research in a, in a Palestinian refugee camp. Um, she is now senior lecturer in politics at the uh, School of Oriental and African Studies in London and is also co-editor of a book on policing and prisons in the modern Middle East. Um, the lecture she's giving today is part of a larger work. Um, the uh, working title for the manuscript is Time in the Shadows, Incarceration, Encounter, Insurgencies. And this lecture today is uh, focusing on the gender aspect of counterinsurgency. Thank you very much, uh, Ian. It's been a pleasure to meet you, and thank you all very much for having me here. I do apologize. I'm a bit coldy today. I've got a couple of young kids at home, and this time of the year, they're little germ factories. And so um, if, I'm, if I'm sucking on stuff, it's not. I'm not chewing gum rudely. I'm having uh, cold medicine to let me breathe while I read. Um, okay. Uh, gendering counterinsurgency. Counterinsurgency, defined as asymmetrical warfare by powerful military against irregular combatants supported by a civilian population, is as old as warfare itself. Although the term itself was coined by John F. Kennedy in 1960, this particular method of warfighting has been a mainstay of colonial warfighting and imperial policing, particularly since the 19th century. Despite the long history of small wars and colonial counterinsurgencies, today's advocates of uh, population-centric counterinsurgency in which the civilian population is persuaded to defect to the counterinsurgent side, um, and this is often counterposed to enemy-centric counterinsurgency in which instead of persuasion, you get intimidation into getting the um, civilians on your side. Um, the advocates of population-centric counterinsurgency present it as a soft option especially as compared with scorched earth military tactics where the annihilation of the enemy is, uh, is the end point. In the population-centric doctrine advanced in the U.S. Army and Marine Counterinsurgency Manual, FM324, and other current classics of counterinsurgency, including John Noggle's Eating Soup with a Knife and David Kilcullen's Accidental Guerrilla and also Counterinsurgency, kinetic force, which is the killing capacity of the military, is to take backstage for grounding, develop mental language and agendas and practice, such as, for example, and I quote, a vibrant economy, political participation, restored hope, um, psychological and information operations, um, the use of local proxies, and um, uh, the integration of civilian military efforts, including aid and governance, because in ultimately the ultimate goal of counterinsurgency is to win over a largely uncommitted civilian population. This coding of counterinsurgency as the civilianized option, which aims at winning the hearts and minds of civilian populations and persuading them to support the counterinsurgent, has a particularly gendered character. What I mean by gendering is a set of practices and discourses that constitute men and women and the masculinities and femininities in particular ways as diametrically opposed things. <clears throat> 
Gendering is not about women alone. You often uh, see gender equated to women. Nor is it about a pure and autonom uh, autonomous dichotomy between men and women. Rather, masculinities and femininities, especially in imperial contexts, are always already cross-hatched with um, other kinds of difference, including racial and class designations. At one level, counterinsurgency itself is presented as the opposite of a more mechanized, technologically advanced, higher kinetic, uh, more kinetic form of warfare. Given that the latter is often coded as hypermasculine, population the, uh, the population-centric counterinsurgency is considered feminine. Second, the very object of population-centric counterinsurgency is often perceived and represented as feminine, since the focus of counterinsurgency is seen to be the transformation of civilian allegiances and remaking of their social world. On the other hand, in the binary categorization which forms the basis of mainstream discourses about war, civilian, which is feminine, is often posed as the opposite of combatant, which is often portrayed as masculine. That's on one hand. On the other hand, spaces and subjectivities, which regular warfare destroys as a matter of side effect rather than intent, uh, or which um, are considered to be um, collateral to the main job of war fighting in conventional warfare, are demarginalized in counterinsurgency. They're brought into focus and in some senses made central to the work of military and civilian counterinsurgents. These spaces and subjectivities are perceived by both the military and civilians as gendered in particular and specific sorts of ways, which I hope to show. Finally, the practices of counterinsurgency itself is predicated on being able to tell combatants from civilians, hostiles from friendlies, um, as well as invading, organizing, fighting, detaining, transforming, and destroying, often, again, on the basis of gender. And again, I will talk about this in a minute. We know from a wealth of scholarship that war and violence have always been gendered, classed and racialized, not only in a practical way they're fought, but also in longer term or everyday manner that they shape social relations um, and are shaped by them. Moreover, we know that the discursive <coughs> practices surrounding war also reproduce extant gender hierarchies through the constant reproduction of a dichotomous rhetoric of masculinities and femininities. What is new with counterinsurgency is the extent to which the centrality of civilian as potential object of military operation is acknowledged in doctrine and practice, even perhaps especially as civilians are instrumentalized as part and process of the war. The complex process by which civilians are mapped to particular gender grids and men and women are read um, and interpolated according to constructed notions of civilian is one of the central forms that this counterinsurgency gendering takes. Further, as mentioned above, counterinsurgency doctrine and practice directly bring these bodies and spaces, which are usually coded private or feminine, households, markets, shops, these are usually coded um, feminine, when, uh, into the space of uh, battlefield. They transform cities and homes and persons into highly gendered segments of physical and human terrain and utilize detailed knowledge about the quotidian um, as ethnographic intelligence. And the quotidian, the everyday, is often perceived and represented as feminine as well. The everyday is supposed to be the domain of the women. This conquered and 
gendered space in which an indigenous population is controlled, surveilled, monitored, and made to acquiesce is the first site which I shall analyze gendered practices of counterinsurgency. I will also um, analyze two other spaces. One in which uh, what I consider to be a theme of encounter, where the, um, the uh, encounter between the counterinsurgent and the population is much more intense, much more uh, routine, and much more repeated. And the third is actually where the policy is made. So the first is the field of, um, the first is the actual field of practice of counterinsurgency. Because of the centrality of the civilian in counterinsurgency, gender relations are also inevitably transformed on the basis of counterinsurgency action. This works through demographics, through targeting of women as counterbalancing forces to male radicalization, through the co-optation of gendered spaces to counterinsurgency practice, and finally the use of gender telling to distinguish those who are to be protected from those who are to be feared and destroyed. Gender demographics are here often invoked as both justification for targeting young men and more instrumentally for planning military action. Youth bulges, a demographic profusion of men between the ages of 15 and 30, especially in Muslim countries, is seen as a structural condition underlying extremism and as a problem to be addressed militarily in faraway places. Young men are seen as um, an automatically useful resource for radical recruitment, and the counterbalance to this is often posed in policy circles as being women's education and job creation programs which are considered to be necessary antidotes. As a response to this kind of um, youth bulges, often of men and often, again, of Muslim populations, it's argued that women are essentially less corrupt, more efficient, better for economic development, and less warlike. And all of these things come out of a modernization theory of the 1960s, which posited women as being essentially different kinds of characters. The feminized security discourse is deployed by all and sundry, and gender mainstreaming becomes even central to military intervention. Policymakers, for example, argue that by providing economic development specifically to suit women, women can be saved from alienation and thus radicalization. Women are cast as wholly socioeconomic beings divested of politics or ethics. Under the heading of, for example, why the military should care, Two U.S. officers, both of them women, suggest that, and I quote, by collaborating with USAID and using women in development's expertise in, on gender integration as part of a comprehensive uh, counterinsurgency strategy, the military can more effectively address the negative socioeconomic conditions that make areas ripe for terrorist exploitation. In a highly influential and much circulated set of guidance notes, the counterinsurgency guru David Kilcullen similarly argues that, and I quote, co-opting neutral or friendly women through targeted social and economic programs builds networks of enlightened self-interest that eventually undermine the insurgents. Win the women and you own the family unit. Own the family and you take a big step forward in mobilizing the population on the side of the counterinsurgents, end quote. Thus, at 
advancing women's rights through modernization is automatically seen as, a, as meeting the national security interests of the U.S. A significant element of counterinsurgency thus becomes provision of social services, which are often allocated to women and are seen as another way in which counterinsurgency action can win them over. For example, a RAND analyst and the wife of um, Zalmay Khalilzad, Cheryl Barnard, writes that, and I quote, healthcare operations have been particularly effective in winning local support in Afghanistan. On repeated occasions, female patients in health clinics, thankful for care received and motivated to support the new order that provided it, have volunteered valuable tactical information to US forces. In this instance, it's not even the question of development, it's just the kind of a short term and immediate um, return of intelligence for provision of social uh, health services. In the field, counterinsurgency transforms the population it is intended to pacify into, into a human terrain which can be made visible, knowable, and malleable. The human terrain system of the US military, for example, couples military officers with social scientists. You guys know this already. And they actually are very interested in all sorts of things, including such things as kinship structures, the peculiarities of gender relations, the way that people live, and their relations with those around them and beyond. These um, specifically gendered structures of life are reified, fixed in time and space, and mobilized as kind of useful facts about the civilian population. Um, again, gender in a very kind of a reified and reductive sort of way. For example, a paper produced by Human Terrain Systems Research Unit is specifically named after gendered kinship structures. My cousin's enemy is my friend is the name of the uh, title. And it argues that, and I quote, rural, Pas rural Pashtuns have well-developed methods to resolve conflicts through jerga mediation and the exchange of property or women. The result of this special kind of intra-family relationship is that during times when conflicts aggravate first cousin hostility, the signs don't necessarily break down along closest male relative line. Whereas in classical Middle East tribal situation, as if there is such a thing, um, all the participants in a conflict pick sides based on which side represent their closest male relative, Pashtuns establish temporary factional groupings that are unpredictable and not necessarily based on familial relationships. End quote. Here, Pashtun kinship ties are taken as timeless facts in the sense that they will never, ever um, do exactly the way that the Middle Easterners will always, always do as. So there's, there's a kind of, they're always considered to be timeless. And contrasted to some idealized, homogenous, equally timeless, classical Middle Eastern tribal situation. Even as the paper again and again indicates that tribal structures can and do vary across time and space. In both Iraq and Afghanistan, gender, familial, and kinship ties are seen as the bases of military strategy, whereby different tribal structures can determine whether or not surges of troops can be effective. Just as important, the very sites of counterinsurgency are usually civilian spaces that are often walled off, both figuratively and literally, as a subsection of the battle space, a grid square that can be more easily pacified. In counterinsurgency, all spaces, and perhaps especially urban quarters, are seen as potential battlegrounds by the counterinsurgents. The conventional privacy measures for homes and the peacefulness of everyday spaces are no longer guaranteed. Spaces often not only coded as feminine, but also considered women's domains, for example, homes, hospitals, and schools especially, are frequently invaded by counterinsurgents. These private or civilian spaces, the home, the school, the hospital, the, the market, the village, are increasingly targeted in modern wars and in fact were specifically the object of intense bombing in conventional warfare in the 20th century. 
What counterinsurgency does, however, is to transform these spaces without necessarily destroying them, although destruction, especially in the wake of population resettlement, is often inevitable. But it co-opts these spaces into a landscape of war. Inevitably, these everyday landscapes are inhabited by civilians who are also made to be figures in the ongoing counterinsurgency. The utilization of these spaces in counterinsurgency is directly and intimate, intimately tied up with the ways in which counterinsurgency practice makes men and women legible and assigns them to different categories of various utility for combat and pacification. Because counterinsurgency requires the categorization of populations into combatants and non-combatants, and because the easiest way to quickly identify and categorize populations as high-risk combatants or low-risk civilians is by gender, the combatant-non-combatant distinction becomes fully gendered, where the all-encompassing suspicion against all men is operationalized into specific actions, which I'm going to discuss a little bit further down, while women are afforded the status of being naive objects of protection, pacification, humanitarian salvage, social health care, etc. We already know that this gendering produces a masculinist logic of uh, protection. This is known from all kinds of warfare. And that the object of military intervention, humanitarian aid, and primary focus of concern in a post-conflict environment becomes an undifferentiated women and children, as um, Cynthia Enloe um, originally wrote. What counterinsurgency does is to transform the women and children into actors considered by the counterinsurgents to be either complicit with the combatants or a terrain upon whom the counterinsurgency social engineering experiments can be performed, or increasingly as hostages and literal or symbolic message bearers for the work of counterinsurgency. Importantly, given the paucity of distinguishing features between civilians and combatants, the gendered process of telling women and children from others becomes central to targeting processes and counterinsurgencies. In 2004, for example, a large number of Iraqi cities were either surrounded by barbed wire, placed under constant monitoring, or both. House invasions were often the norm. In these circumstances, women became direct targets of violence. They were taken as hostages to compel the men to surrender, their homes were destroyed, and they were specifically targeted because of the purportedly intuitive understanding of the enormity of attacking women and the ways in which such targeting would send a message to others. So they specifically were taken hostage to send a message. Men were targeted differently. In the cordon cities where retinal scans, thumbprints, identity cards, and registers of residence are used to monitor the populations, Men between the ages of 15 and 15, 16, and 50 were considered to be primary targets of this intensive, aggressive, and invasive surveillance. This targeting of men also conveniently served another function. It allowed for soldiers to specifically effeminize the men of the population through both symbolic and practical emasculations. Such tactics included undressing of men at checkpoints and in prisons and the use of language which is intended to dishonor them. This partially came out of an Orientalist understanding of what is considered honorable or shameful in Muslim culture and which presents this culture's notions of indignity and abuse as exceptional. As a former U.S. military interrogator recounts, the interrogator's cultural training was based on the infamous um, book called The Arab Mind by Rafael Patai, which included such admonishments as men should not touch Arab women, female soldiers should avoid touching Arab men, thus casting sexualized abuse as a particularly abhorrent thing to Arabs rather than uh, to, to, to the entirety of the population. So this is one of the first places where it happens in, in these kinds of encounters between soldiers and the populations. Then there is a second location in which gendering happens in 
in counterinsurgency. And this is what I call the seam of encounter. A more complicated set of gendering practices occurs not at the end point of application of counterinsurgency force, but at the seam of encounter, which is repeated, routinized, and intentional encounters between occupying military forces and the people subjected to counterinsurgency. This seam is the messy interstitial space in which race, gender, and class end up becoming much more significant. Here, two groups in particular stand out. First, the women from the invading and occupying army. And second, the local men who serve as proxy enforcers of order for the invading military. In the first instance, with the, with the women that are in the army, the displacement of inequalities to a new colonial setting suddenly inverts orders of hierarchy. And women from very disadvantaged backgrounds can suddenly become powerful players positioned against and above the local males in the invaded space. This inversion of hierarchies is reinforced by representing the arrested and incarcerated Iraqi men, for example, as rapists, and the local male population as oppressors of their wives and families. The, peculiar, the peculiarity of this positioning, where working class women from the least privileged parts of the US found themselves in positions of power vis-a-vis -vis Iraqi men, has been best personified in the narratives about Lindy England and Sabrina Harmon. England and Harman have become iconic figures, symbolizing the torture inflicted upon Iraqi men in the Abu Ghraib prison. The former held a leash encircling the neck of a naked Iraqi man curled into a vulnerable fetal position. The latter had herself photographed smiling cherubically and giving a thumbs up sign while leaning close to the dead body of a visibly bruised and battered Iraqi general. The US prison guards and interrogators who had inflicted pain upon Iraqi captives never managed to generate the same sense of disgust as England and Harman. This is quite interesting, that the two women generated much more outrage than the male, uh, their male counterparts had done. Um, although uh, one, of the uh, one of the male abusers ended up getting a longer sentence than everybody else. But in general public, the women were the ones who generated the outrage. Not only were um, England and Harman the iconic representations of transgressive women, they were also subtly the embodiment of a new hierarchy of power, in which white women were automatically placed in superior positions to men who in other circumstances would have been the expected superiors. For example, the Iraqi general's class position would be more privileged than that of a daughter of a police detective, Harman, or a poultry factory worker, England. In the instances where women have been used as interrogators, their bodies and their sexuality have been deployed as technologies of power. In one of the most disturbing accounts of interrogations, um, uh, this is uh, both at Bagram and later at Guantanamo, a male interrogator writes about female interrogators using their breasts, their bodies, and their menstrual blood as necessary tools for achieving dictated aims. I'm going to recount a story that is pretty gory, but I think it sort of indicates what I'm talking about. This is uh, an account written by a US interrogator. We return to the interrogation book uh, booth. Brooke, who's a female interrogator, and I were both in our sanitized BDUs. Sanitized because they had um, the names taped over BDUs, battle dress uniform. To my surprise, she started to unbutton her top slowly, teasingly, almost like a stripper, revealing a skin-tight brown army t-shirt stretching over her chest. Farik, 
in this instance, a Saudi prisoner, wouldn't look at her. What's the matter, Farik? Don't you like women? Are you gay? Why do you keep looking at him? Brooke asked, referring to me. She started unbuttoning her BDU pants. Farik, do you know what I'm having my period? Uh, do you know what? I'm having my period, she said. She placed her hands in her pants as she started to circle behind the detainee. How do you feel about me touching you now? Brooke came back around the other side, and he could see that she was beginning to withdraw her hand from her pants. As it became visible, the Saudi saw what looked like red blood on her hands. It was actually ink. You fuck, she hissed, wiping what, she believed, what he believed was menstrual blood on his face. What do you think your brothers will think of you in the morning when they see an American woman's menstrual blood on your face, Brooke said, standing up. By the way, we've shut off the water to your cell tonight, so the, bell, uh, so the blood will, will be there till tomorrow. This uncritical self-abnegation of the white interrogator woman in the service of some nationalist understanding of national security is part of the peculiar gendering of counterinsurgency practices. A much more banal representation of this theme of encounter, and perhaps in many respects more important, because much more pervasive and much less dramatic, um, has been the ease with which women have moved into combat roles, serving the empire unquestioningly, with their integration into these roles being celebrated as some form of liberationist policy. A male lieutenant colonel in the army in the U.S. Army writes, on any given day in Iraq, an American soldier might be asked to search travelers at a roadside checkpoint, comfort distraught mothers whose children have been killed or injured, search a woman's quarters in a strictly Islamic household, or assist civilians whose homes have been destroyed. Given the traditional role of women as peacekeepers and humanitarians in their own home, it is not illogical to believe that a woman could perform each of these tasks as well, if not better, thus providing a justification for women in combat roles. Thus, a gendered body becomes a necessary, indeed desired adjunct or um, accessory to an asymmetrical warfare because she does softer work, traditional work, peacekeeping work. A second place in the seam of encounter where genders are inflected through this mixture of race, class, and imperial hierarchies is where the U.S. military men meet the local security forces they're training. Training and developing indigenous police and military forces is a central tenet of counterinsurgency. The tasks here include developing a U.S.-style um, training base, embedding advisors, initiating an intensive collective training program, and partnering American units with indigenous units. Yet the local men, who often risk opprobrium for joining Americans, <coughs> are constantly berated and effeminized, called women or pussies, and seen as inadequate and passive enforcers of good order by their trainers. Here, masculinity alone of the indigenous forces does not form the basis of transnational solidarity. And again, gender hierarchies are strongly shaded by other factors, such as class, race or ethnicity, language and religion, subculture, sexuality, etc. According to this logic, if a member of the local security force does not fight a war in which, to which he does not necessarily have allegiances, his manhood is considered to be impaired. In an account of the U.S. assault in Fallujah, a commander of the 1st Marine Regiment considers Iraqi policemen and civil defense corps troops who fled the devastation of the city to be inferior and effeminized. He said, when are these people going to discover their manhood and stand and fight with us to save their city? In this view, working for the occupying force is what allows a man his masculinity. But sometimes even this acquiescence does not necessarily suffice. 
When more circumspect officers speak of a lack of maturity for an indigenous uh, security force, which does not perform as the imperial military expect them, there are videos circulating online sites that show much more overtly gendered conversation between a U.S. Marine trainer, for example, and Iraqi security forces. The former questions the loyalty of the latter and then calls them bunches of women, pussies, cowards, too much of a fucking woman to die for a country, um, lacking a backbone, yet killing Americans and refusing to fight insurgents. When an, when an Iraqi sits standing there and being berated, sneers at him, the Marine challenges him to going out back and having his little ass being beaten. In a context where a proxy force fights for an imperial one, the gendering of these proxy forces can usually take two different paths in, in imperial history. On the one hand, the colonial discourse surrounding martial races envisioned fighters in the service of empire who were naturally fiercer fighters. For example, like the Kenyan Maasai, the Nepalese Gurkhas, the Afghan Pathans or Pashtuns, the Indian Sikhs, the Scottish Highlanders were all considered to be martial races. This, at the same time, <clears throat> in such colonial war fighting, <coughs> nevertheless a gendering happens. As Anne McClintock has written with regards to Africa, the white race was considered the male of the species and the black race was considered the female. So on the one hand you have this discourse of martial races, on the other you have this um, gendering on the basis of racial difference. Although this may seem in the first glance contradictory, a certain set of familiar tropes actually connect the two discourses to one another. A notion of loyalty to the conquering empire represents a degree of masculinity. So the more loyal you become to the empire, the more male you become. You move along this gender spectrum from, from the more effeminized, abject colonial to the more masculine, loyal fighter. Um, in the context of the war on terror, the men who are located in the scene of encounter are cast in these seemingly contradictory ways. They can be at once courageous and manly allies and sodomizing homosexual rapists. I want to particularly read a revealing account um, from an oral history of a former U.S. military man stationed in Afghanistan, which has all the tropes in one story. Okay, so he says... Homosexuality was pervasive among the Afghans, especially Pashtuns in the south. This is the, the uh, Pashtuns who were fighting alongside Americans. Even when they weren't overtly engaged in acts of sex, they would cling to each other, hold each other's hands, and generally cavort in ways that would astonish Westerners and repulse soldiers. Some of the Marines would laugh incredulously. Others would be moved to violent reaction. In one case, Fitzgerald watched a gigantic Marine march furiously towards two coupled Afghans, pick them up, toss them in different directions like dogs, yelling the whole time in English the Afghans couldn't understand. The female of the two scurried away. The dominant male was sort of indignant and flipped the scarf over his shoulder and walked off. Now the Pashtun, just the paragraph before, the, guy, the same person has talked about how good of fighters the Pashtuns were in these instances. And then this story comes up. The Pashtun or the warrior allies in this narrative are compared to dogs and effeminized not only because of the sexual acts of which the masculine U.S. Marine disapproves, but also because they hold each other's hands and repulse Westerners with their homosociality. Even the story as it is told draws on certain masculine and feminine images. There's a gigantic Marine who stands for unspoiled American masculinity, while there's an indignant Pashtun who flips his scarf over his shoulder, which is a cliched imagery of a petulant teenager flipping her hair in exasperation. 
So this is the second set of um, genderings that happen. The final set of genderings that I want to look to is the counterinsurgent women and the soldier scholars of the metropole. <clears throat> While gendering works in familiar, even predictable ways in the conquered spaces and at the scene of encounter, Gendering of counterinsurgency becomes much more fluid and sometimes unpredictable in the metropole, where policies are formulated, ideologies are articulated, and wars are planned and legitimized. Two ways in which counterinsurgency practice and discourse have become gendered in the metropole have been most striking. On the one hand, the creation of a new counterinsurgent masculinity, that of the soldier scholar, and on the other hand, the appropriation of a colonial feminist discourse and a saturating of counterinsurgency discourse by women bureaucrats and policymakers who explicitly allied their counterinsurgency credentials to their gendered identities. The soldier scholars are numerous and now well known. They are overwhelmingly represented in the ranks of counterinsurgents. This is particularly interesting to me. David Petraeus, who's got a PhD in international relations. David Kilcullen, PhD in political science. John Noggle, PhD in history, from here. H.R. Uh, McMaster, PhD in history. Andrew Exum, uh, PhD in war studies, are all vocal, articulate, and highly educated military or ex-military men, all of whom are ranked quite high, uh, all of whom are engaged in policymaking vis-a-vis -vis the war on terror, and all of whom are enthusiastic counterinsurgents. Some have written influential books and articles on counterinsurgency. Others have been um, online or think tank presences pushing forward a counterinsurgency agenda, while Petraeus, of course, is needs no introduction. The soldier scholars all advance a notion of war fighting, which ostensibly takes into account political nuances, aims to win over civilian population, and deploys an openly liberal discourse of salvation and humanitarianism. Not only is a soldier scholar the ultimate in civic virtue, he's also the embodiment of international wisdom, war fighting prowess, and a kind of knowingness about the world. This transformation in the notion of masculinity from a kind of a macho warrior to a soldier scholar is actually something that they very specifically talk about. So for example, when um, an old school warrior that many of the counterinsurgents did not like called Nathan Sassaman uh, wrote a book called The Warrior King, many of the blogs burst into uh, commentary about how no real soldier would call himself a warrior, they were soldiers. So it's a new form of masculinity that is being discussed here. Even the official discourse around counterinsurgency reflects this shift. The Counterinsurgency Field Manual, FM324, compares a regular fighter to that ultimate icon of raw physical masculinity, a pugilist who's nevertheless blind and is wasting energy flailing at unseen opponents and perhaps causing unin um, unintended harm. They say that access to military intelligence, on the other hand, transforms the counterinsurgent from a blind boxer into, <clears throat> um, sorry, <clears throat> into surgeons cutting out cancering tissues while keeping, keeping other vital organs intact. So on the one hand, you have this wholly embodied corporeal presence of the boxer. On the other hand, you have the precise intellect of the surgeon. The theoreticians of counterinsurgency obviously prefer the latter. Not only does this counterpositioning of boxers and surgeons contains implicit notion of masculinities, two different kinds of masculinities, they perhaps even more importantly hide within plain sight a particular gradation of class. 
The boxer is the working class hero. The surgeon is the upper middle class professional. The former is emotional, embodied, perhaps even irrational. The latter is intellectual, cool, steady-handed, all the ways in which counterinsurgency is seen to be most effective. The soldier scholar is particularly well suited to the liberal interventionist model, which sees its job as cautiously and pragmatically doing the biddings of the US national interest. Soldier scholars are not interested in chest-thumping gestures, deploying the language of heart and mind much more readily and see their want, they deploy the language of heart and mind uh, much more readily and see their want as being the wielders of softer or smarter power. Alongside this new form of masculinity, a much more familiar colonial feminism is crucial in advancing a particularly new form of metropolitan warrior femininity. Colonial feminism of today deploys the language of humanitarian rescue. The feminized security rhetoric has become completely commonplace in, in the administration, says one of these um, uh, um, warrior feminists. So much so that it is typical for an official who gives a speech about American actions in Iraq and Afghanistan or about US policy of promoting democracy around the world to draw the connection to the pursuit of women's rights. This colonial feminism is appealing to a new category of women policymakers who pride themselves in a kind of collaborative warrior femininity. These counterinsurgent women not only deploy a gendered analysis in their discussion of counterinsurgency, for example, they say that these types of operations require very perceptive and deep emotional IQ, and therefore they are particularly well suited to women. This is one of the women counterinsurgents <coughs> arguing this. And they also say, women have a more collaborative style, which again makes them more suitable to counterinsurgency, but also use feminist justification for their involvement. So another woman counterinsurgent says, we aren't going to win by telling half the population they can't play. The counterinsurgent women have been particularly crucial in creating or sustaining the humanitarian element of the war on terror. The human train system is also on this side, a cultural side, for example, which was originally conceived by counterinsurgent woman Montgomery McFate, who wrote her doctoral thesis in cultural anthropology on British counterinsurgency in Northern, Northern Ireland, and who was for a while a highly visible figure, both as a target of US anthropologist's anger and as a fashionable and uber-feminine policy wonk. McFate, in becoming a fellow at the Office of Naval Research, shed her nose ring, and she said, writing, realizing that there were certain semiotic cues that would unnerve paranoidal old white men. She found no contradiction between her awareness of the gender difference of old white men and counterinsurgent women and the particularly militarist role that she envisioned for social scientists. As significant are the new category of women security scholars to circulate between the domain of academy, think tanks, and policymaking world. As, sorry, as significant are the new category of women security scholars who circulate between the domain of academy, think tank, and policymaking world. And many of them have been very significant until very recently, and, and I'll answer this in question and answers if need be, um, in the Obama administration, but some are now leaving. Sarah Sewell, for example, is, um, in addition to having been formerly the head of the Carr Center for Human Rights at Harvard and the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Peacekeeping during the Clinton administration, was also the author of the foreword to the U.S. Army and Marine Corps Counterinsurgency Field Manual and has been serving uh, President Obama. Samantha Power, um, also in the Obama administration, is a strong advocate of humanitarian military in intervention and the author of a book about Rwanda. 
She's also advisor to President Obama and was involved in drafting his controversial Nobel speech in defense of U.S. counterinsurgency in Afghanistan. Similarly, the authors of the foreword and introduction to the U.S. Army Stability Operations Field Manual are also women. Michelle Flournoy, who was one of the, uh, one of the founders of Center for New American um, Security, which is a counterinsurgency, or originally started off as a South Asia think tank, but became a counterinsurgency think tank, and Janine Davidson, respectively. Flournoy is, will be, I think, until the 1st of March, and then she leaves, uh, Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, at the Obama Pentagon, um, and as I said, she was a founder of CNAS. Um, Davidson was in the Bush Pentagon Special Operations and Low Intensity Conflict and Special Capabilities Directorate. She's also a former um, pilot, and she has been um, the first Deputy Secretary of Defense for Plans in the Obama Pentagon. So there are all these women uh, security officials who um, have written extensively, all of them, and taught counterinsurgency. These women are also increasingly present in the field of military operations. Two women in particular are worth mentioning here. Sarah um, Chayes, who's advisor to General McChrystal, who was advisor to General McChrystal in Afghanistan, and Emma Skye, who might be a familiar figure here, um, advisor to General Odierno in Iraq. Neither women have ever spoken about gender or feminism or the ways in which their being women may have influenced their work and their political decisions. So in this, they differ from the group that I talked about just uh, a couple of minutes ago. Yet they both embody a kind of uh, an intersection of particular class, class gen and gender positionings in particular imperial contexts. Both women come from non-military backgrounds. Caius is the daughter of liberal Democrats who work closely with President Kennedy. Skye is a, of a middle-class background, which provided her with private secondary education. Before their careers as advisors to the military commanders of, of Afghanistan and Iraq, Caius um, was a journalist. Skye was a development specialist working for DFID and then later British Council. Both received their educations in elite universities, Harvard and Oxford, and both um, have learned to speak the predominant language of the country in which they're advisors. So Sky speaks Arabic, she also speaks Hebrew, because she was appointed to Jerusalem for a while. Hayes has also had tutoring in Arabic, but has learned to speak Pashto fluently. Both their previous works has had anthropological elements in it, requiring close and intimate knowledge of the indigenous people amongst whom they have worked. Both are often described in a vocabulary that emphasizes their femininity. Heiss is called tall and stylish. Sky is considered petite. But Andrew Exum also says that she's one of those tough, intrepid women the old British Empire excels at producing. I hope she's not here. You're not here, Emma Sky. I'm, I'm supposed to be sitting on a panel with her in about two weeks' time. I'm hoping she hasn't read this. Um, or if she has, I mean, anyway. Uh, she probably quite likes being compared to Margaret Bell. Um, they both, they both have assumed a kind of drag. While living in Afghanistan, Sarah Khayes decided to wear men's clothing as a lifestyle choice. And on one blog post, Sarah's, um, Emma Sky has huge legions of admirers among counterinsurgents in the US. And somebody just writes about, I love this. They were like admiring her in different ways, her intellect, her travels. And one of them said, and when the car broke down, she changed the tires. <laughs> that manliest of manly tasks. <clears throat> 
But these humanitarian workers, with their backgrounds of privilege and their education, training, and experience in humanitarian development work, have become convinced of the good offices of the military. On the one hand, they represent the soft, feminized notions of politics, developmental work, NGO work, reconciliation work, all posts that are often considered emotional, soft, womanly, and which are all too often uh, also populated by women. Yet they both see in the new way of war, in the population-centric counterinsurgency, a, a totally new way of doing um, development. Um, Sky is described as, uh, as I said, a modern Gertrude Bell, uh, not Margaret Bell, seeing her advisory job as, uh, to, to Odierno as uh, a position of influence and speaks of loving the US military. She thinks the military is better than the country it protects. Um, Hayes describes the US military as public-spirited and doing its darndest to do the right thing. There's even a familiar element of screwball romance in the way that the pairs, McChrystal, Hayes, and Odierno Skies were always portrayed in, in the writing. The women come across as kind of frank and sassy companions who don't hesitate to talk back. So there are these three fields. Counterinsurgency provides a fertile ground, in conclusion, in which a, new, a kind of new warrior masculinity regenerates itself through the figure of soldier-scholar and the manner in which the self-declared emancipatory feminist project is co-opted by the metropolitan power complex um, is, is also itself noteworthy. This reproduction of resilient and new forms of masculinity and femininity show not only the flexibility of the machinery of rule, but also the dynamic recreation of power hierarchies constantly. In this reordering, um, warlike feminism and scholarly soldiering take their place at the top of the pyramid. A few rungs further down, the imperial grunts themselves are much more ensconced in the traditional warrior masculinities, about whom a good deal of lucidly critical scholarship has already been penned. Their masculinity emerges out of a specific complex of class and racial geopolitical positioning, where national security discourses are unproblematically conjoined to heteronormative tropes of manliness, courage, and virtue. Below the man, the imperial grunts are the working class white women who in the seam of encounter with the indigenous forces find themselves elevated above the colonized men they're charged to monitor, control, or subdue. While ambiguous, the empire gives them a pathway to climbing the ragged ladder of social mobility. Racialized women are placed below them in this hierarchy, too troubling to the kinds of social order envisioned in the empire to be named in the heroic narratives of imperial rescue. And at the very bottom layer of this pyramid of power are the conquered men and women, their bodies subjected to violence and surveillance, their lives re-engineered to suit urban counterinsurgencies, pacifications, population control, and the winning of hearts and minds. Thanks very much.